This is a recording of Atheist Piety, a Religion of Dogmatic Dubiety, by Lewis C. Midgley, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 1, 2012, read by William Hamblin. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. Review of Tom Flynn et al., America's Peculiar Piety, Why Did Mormonism Grow and Why Does It Endure? Free Inquiry, October-November, 2011, pages 21-41. to 41. So then, remember that at one time you Gentiles were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God, atheos, in the world. Ephesians 2, 11-12. This special, special feature in Free Inquiry is not a typical Protestant sectarian criticism of the Church of Jesus Christ. Instead, the seven essays fit snugly into a current fashionable strain of secular criticism of the faith of the saints. They are also examples of objections to any faith in divine things. Since atheism is diverse and divided, each of the sometimes competing ideologies has a complex, interesting history. I will begin by locating the particular variety of atheism reflected in free inquiry on a larger historical and ideological map. Though doubts about deities were present among ancient Greek philosophers, the adjective atheist, from atheos meaning without God, surfaced only rather recently to describe unbelief. Specifically, it can be seen in the writings of Paul-Henri Thierry, Baron d'Orbach, 1723-1789, who published a series of books with titles such as Christianity Unveiled, 1761, and The Sacred Contagion, 1768, leading eventually to his The System of Nature, or Laws of the Moral and Physical World, 1770, in which he argued that the faith in God is a pernicious, dangerous force in human affairs. A profoundly bold and public atheism can be found in the writings of Karl Marx, 1818-1883, Friedrich Nietzsche, 1844-1900, and Sigmund Freud, 1856-1939, those Marty Martin once called the God-killers. It was Marx whose ideas generated a political mass movement with an explicitly atheist agenda. His target was religion, in which category he included not only faith in God, but also the material and ideological grounds for the entire social structure. According to Marx, quote, The foundation of the criticism of religion is, Man makes religion, religion does not make man. Religion, indeed, is man's self-consciousness and self-estimation, while he has not found his feet in the universe. But man is no abstract being squatting outside the world. Man is the world of men, the state, society. This state, this society, produces religion, which is an inverted world consciousness, because they are an inverted world. Religion is the general theory of this world, its encyclopedic compendium its logic in popular form, its spiritualistic point d'honneur, its enthusiasm, its moral sanction, its solemn compliment, its general basis of consolation and justification. It is the fantastic realization of the human being inasmuch as the human being possesses no re true reality. The struggle against religion is therefore indirectly the struggle against the world whose spiritual aroma is religion. Religious misery is in one mouth the expression of real misery, and in another is a protestation against real misery. Religion is the moan of the oppressed creature, the sentiment of a heartless world, as it is the spirit of the spiritless conditions. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion, as an illusory happiness of the people, is the demand for their real happiness. The demand to abandon the illusions about their condition is a demand to abandon a condition which requires illusions. The criticism of religion therefore contains potentially the criticism of the veil of tears, whose arole is religion. 
In quotation. Those following in the footsteps of the Enlightenment tended to boast of their own emancipation or liberation from what they pictured as the silly myth and magic, as well as the soul-destroying dominance and control that they routinely attributed to faith in God. However, beginning with Marx, public atheism moved from salons in Paris to the streets to become the foundation for a militant mass movement. As a result, modern atheists are not satisfied with being merely doubters, unchurched, or again following Paul's language in Ephesians 2.12, Atheos. Following Marx, atheists are no longer satisfied with merely understanding the world. They want to change it. Hence, behind the current rash of atheism is a passionate faith that science and or philosophy, however conceived, must now liberate both individuals and society from emotionally grounded faith in God and other evils encountered in this world. The editors of Free Inquiry and many who opine in its pages boast that they are not hemmed in by or independent on wishful thinking, driven by mere feelings or otherwise devoted to religious delusion. This faith is the ground for the religion promoted in free inquiry. In the pre-modern world, there were those who in various ways struggled with fear of divine retribution by angry gods. There were, of course, doubts about divine things in the ancient world. Those who entertained such doubts did not, however, self-identify as atheists. An early manifestation of what, without the use of the word, can be called atheisms, seems to have been, if not exactly cowardly, at least cautious. By contrast, modern critics of faith in God tend to picture themselves as heroic Invictus-like masters of their own destiny, who have no need for the consolation and hope offered by a faith in God and often found among the so-called peoples of the book. They are boastfully proud of being atheos. In addition, much like the Prometheus of Greek fable, they see themselves as heroic warriors struggling in a titan-like battle to save humans from terrible dominance by delusion about a sublime divine. They fight this battle in a valiant effort to liberate others as well as themselves from the oppression of false faith and to substitute a new, presumably true faith. In this they are not unlike earlier doubters of deities, who were not at all Promethean but were often Epicureans seeking given the accident of their circumstances, to avoid as much pain as possible before being liberated from all pain by death. In the pre-modern Western world, the gods were routinely regarded as the ultimate source of the laws of regimes, and hence also the guarantors of the moral and legal order. One good reason for caution in challenging or even questioning such deities was fear of persecution by outraged public authorities. To see the possible or likely consequences of public expressions of doubt about what the poets of a given regime proclaimed about the gods, and hence about the, a regime's theology, one has only to be reminded of the fate of Socrates. But of course, fear of persecution did not silence rational endeavors and doubts about divine things. Instead, it led to a cautious questioning and speculation sometimes set out in esoteric passages as philosophers sought to address both a narrow guild of discreet disciples and also a less discerning general audience. Be that as it may, what seemed good for a questioning philosopher and perhaps his faithful acolytes was not necessarily thought to be good for the social order. Private intellectual virtues may at times compete with public virtue. Those with doubts about divine things sensed that a public fuss about such things might impair the moral fabric of their regimes, which was a good thing that even they needed badly. Put another way, doubters seemed to have sensed that without the fear of divine retribution, the necessary salutary habitual obedience to moral and legal rules would evaporate, especially for those driven by avarice, ambition, and so forth. Children and childish adults thus were thought to need additional sanctions supporting moral and legal restraints. Those who entertained their deep doubts also recognized the social utility or of belief in the gods. Divine retribution was even pictured as a useful myth or noble lie that supported the legal and moral rules necessary for a civilized society. This tended to make critiques of a regime's gods a private matter. 
But eventually there was what can be called a public atheism. For example, Epicureans sought to eliminate fear of active gods, which opened the door for a hedonist or utilitarian-type pleasure-seeking, paid-avoiding ethic. The core Epicurean argument was that, in a world properly bereft of active gods, minimizing as much pain as possible and thereby maximizing pleasure was the prudent way of life. They argued that if the gods were somehow indifferent to human behavior and its attendant miseries, or were mere illusions, then humans have no fear of divine retribution. Such fear even spoils whatever pleasures are available. No longer, they insisted, must one wince as one pleasures oneself since the gods are passive and have no interest in human affairs. Epicureans taught a strictly mercenary way of life grounded on a theoretical explanation of how things really are. Their basic theoretical argument was that humans, like everything, are merely temporary, fortuitous coming together of atoms. But the driving motive behind Epicurean criticism of divine things was essentially practical and not primarily theoretical. Epicurean morality celebrates pleasure-seeking, which necessarily involves a prudent assessment of the likelihood of either pleasure or pain resulting from some course of action. One obvious problem with Epicurean brand of atheism was that pleasure-seeking always involves an awareness and an assessment of the risk of pain. Momentary pleasures are likely to be followed by devastating and lasting pains. In addition, there simply is no impregnable fortress of scientific and philosophical argument that safeguards anyone from either experiencing a sudden end in death or eventually confronting the reality that pleasure, either pure or mixed with pain, gradually withers as one approaches death, when all pleasures presumably end. However, the good news is that all pain is believed to end with death. There will be, they assure themselves, no divine retribution. Something like this is the message of a remarkable didactic poem by Lucretius, 99-55 BC. Death, it is argued, is no evil since it ends all pain. This is certainly not a shout of joy. It is merely, at best, cautious advice to seek whatever pleasures one can find and avoid as much pain as possible, coupled to the hope that whatever mess one makes of the pleasure-pain calculus, it all ends sooner or later with death. The conclusion is that one need not fear death, for it is the ultimate liberation from this miserable world. While struggling to avoid pain, one need not be set upon by false notions of divine beings who have even more pain planned for disobedient mortals after their miserable deaths. The atheism that the saints and others who have faith in God now confront is a practical or moral revolt against divine things. This takes the form of a criticism not merely of confused, false, or mistaken understandings of God, of which I believe there are many, but of the very possibility of God. Modern militant atheists insist that the consolation for evil provided by faith in God is no longer necessary. No one need live with an illusion of a future paradise. Instead, one must now strive to change the world for the better through education, ideological enlightenment, and resolute political action. The best or worst examples of regimes made to rest on an atheist ideology are those with an explicit atheist agenda. This has not, however, deterred atheist political activism. Paul Kurtz, Prometheus Books, and Free Inquiry. The failure and eventual collapse of communism came as both a shock and a disappointment to many atheists. Paul Kurtz, born in 1925, claims to have been shocked to discover at the end of World War II that pr prisoners of war from the Soviet Union were not eager to return home. But even with his illusions of a godless worker's paradise shattered and his youthful hopes dashed, he did not abandon atheism. Instead, in addition to founding Prometheus Books in August 1969, Kurtz also launched the Center for Inquiry, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, and the Council for Secular Humanism. In 1980, through his Council for Secular Humanism, he began, he began free inquiry. He has managed thereby to bring a measure of ideological solidarity and institutional structure to atheism in America. Before Kurtz became a force, it was common for atheists to picture themselves as religious, 
and also as forming a kind of surrogate church. He has sought to put a stop to this atheist self-understanding. The practical failures of Marxism have perhaps sobered, but have not deterred atheists. The fact is that one no longer encounters the shy, cautious, and retiring atheism of antiquity, or even the remnants of enlightenment skepticism about divine things, but rather an active, aggressive, and rhetorically violent public atheism. The so-called new atheists, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Richard Dawkins, have recently drawn wide public attention. Although Kurtz is not a household name, even among Latter-day Saints scholars, he has published more than 50 books and 800 essays and reviews. He has, as I will demonstrate, also been responsible for an assortment of attacks on Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. It is not clear that he has had a hand in the most recent batch of essays in Free Inquiry, since on 18 May 2010, he resigned from all of his executive editorial positions with the agencies he had founded since 1976. Tom Flynn, a co close associate of Kurtz, is now the official editor of Free Inquiry, as well as executive director for the Council of Secular Humanism. The October-November issue of Free Inquiry comprises a total of 66 pages, of which 21 constitute a miscellany of opinions on Mormon topics. None of these essays makes a contribution to understanding the faith of the saints or the crucial history of the Restoration. Some of the authors assume the conclusions they reach. None of these essays gives the appearance of having been written with much understanding of Latter-day Saint history or faith. Each of the seven essays is reviewed separately below. 1. Thomas Tom Flynn, Introduction to the Special Feature, entitled America's Peculiar Piety, Why Did Mormonism Grow? Why Does It Endure? Tom Flynn, born 1955, in addition to being a journalist, novelist, entertainer, folklorist, and editor of Free Inquiry, has published two atheist handbooks. He considers himself knowledgeable about the faith of the Latter-day Saints. However, he raises serious doubts about his qualifications by insisting that the Church of Jesus Christ is headquartered at that spectacular temple in Salt Lake City. He also assures his readers, After years of avocational reading and research, I strongly suspect that Joseph Smith Jr. conceived his homespun faith as a conscious fraud, but later, fatally, came to believe in his own messianic pretensions. Quote. He grants that other secular humanists have different explanations for what he believes was so transparently born chicanery. He promises that other essays in this issue of his magazine will sort such questions as how can secular humanists and Mormons most constructively interact, or what is it like to leave Mormon beliefs and heritage behind. However, in none of the essays is either question addressed. 2. Brian Dalton, My Journey into Formanism Dalton is known for having created a serial comic sketch in which he plays Mr. Deity, the lead role. My Journey is clearly an exit story. As is common in this genre, Dalton includes a fashionable complaint about the sense of betrayal and pain that he experienced when he went missing. A more naive, candid, and revealing version of Dalton's exit story has been made available in an interview by John Dolin. It turns out that Dalton grew up with a guitar and not faith. Then there was a brief moment in which he gave faith a whirl. He even accepted a missionary call, but left the missionary training center when he was offered a pop musical gig. He joined this sybaritic, demonic world of drugs and casual sex. He now sees that bizarre world as profoundly evil. For a living, he has turned instead to graphic design. He admits that his loss of faith has occasionally troubled him because... He has found nothing to counter the dreadful thought of his utter annihilation and also the ultimate futility of all of his endeavors, given the ideology he now entertains. His way of dealing with such thoughts seems to be making fun of faith by playing the role of Mr. Deity in the spoof he created. An example of his wit is his use of the snappy label Foreman to describe himself, hence the word Foremanism in the title of his exit story. Dalton, led by Delin, actually claims to have read much LDS apologetic literature prior to his aborted mission call, but nothing in his interview indicates that either Dalton or Delin has even an elementary grasp of contemporary LDS scholarship. Delin gently coaches Mr. Deity to claim DNA studies along with hearing about seer stones led him to reject the Book of Mormon. But did this realization come long? 
long after he had lapsed back into the pop music world with its abundance of moral evil? Neither Dalton nor Delenn sort any such questions. Mr. Deity's exit story clearly does not address the question, why did Mormonism grow and why does it endure, which Tom Flynn introduced his, this special feature. Is the curmudgeonly anti-clause that Flynn has a special affinity for a befuddled Mr. Deity? 3. Robert M. Price. Joseph Smith, liar, lunatic, or lord? Dr. Price, born 1954, depending on his mood, either doubts or flatly denies that there ever was a Jesus of Nazareth. Even as a fellow of the Westar Institute's rather bizarre Jesus seminar, he goes much further than many or most of his skeptical associates by turning Jesus into a mere literary figure with no historical reality. Be that as it may, he boasts that he has undergone a faith journey. He tells of having once been a fundamentalist. He is now anxious to exercise his initial pugnacious, passionate fundamentalist background. He likes to explain that he began when he was in his teens by being born again in a fundamentalist Baptist church. He zealously engaged in witnessing to the unsaved. But he soon realized that accepting Jesus didn't seem to change anything here and now. His new enthusiasm turned sour. It was, as is often the case, both poorly grounded and ephemeral. So, quote, he began to reassess his faith, deciding at length that traditional Christianity simply did not have either the historical credentials or the intellectual cogency its defenders claimed for it, end quote. In 1977-78, he began, read, quote, reading religious thinkers and theologians from other traditions, as well as the sociology, anthropology, and psychology of religion, end quote. He soon, quote, considered himself a theological liberal in the camp of Paul Tillich. End quote. He seems to have taught in the Religious Studies Department of Mount Olive College in North Carolina for a while before he became the pastor of the very liberal First Baptist Church of Montclair, New Jersey, 1989 to 1994. He did not prosper as a Protestant preacher. His liberal piety faded as he began to see himself as a Christian atheist. In a recent interview with Clay Painter, Dr. Price provides information on his religious odyssey. He indicates how he came to write essays on the Book of Mormon. Soon after his Southern Baptist family moved to Missis from Mississippi to New Jersey when he was about 10, he was socialized in a fundamentalist Baptist congregation. This indoctrination persisted until he started his work on his master's degree, at which time his born-again faith melted away. He turned initially to an extreme liberal theology and then to religious humanism, but he eventually settled on atheism, or what he calls secular humanism. Price describes himself as hot and cold or back and forth on religious matters. Despite his ardent atheism, he indicates that he still enjoys religious liturgy and has had some unidentified religious experiences. In 1990 and 1993, Signature Books introduced Price to two collections of essays critical of the Book of Mormon. He indicates that he was enthralled by essays in those volumes written by Mark D. Thomas. Price invited Thomas to contribute an article on critical research on the Book of Mormon to the Journal of Higher Criticism, which Price once edited. In 2000, Signature Books published Thomas's argument that the Book of Mormon is Joseph Smith's efforts to resolve theological puzzles. Then, during the summers of 2003 to 2006, Thomas held what he called a Book of Mormon Roundtable. Price was a prize participant at those events. In the Painter interview, Price describes what he terms as a friendly confrontation on the historical authenticity of the Book of Mormon with one he called Jack Sullivan, John W. Welch perhaps, and with other people from farms. This encounter, Price indicates, brought an end to the Book of Mormon roundtable. Price believes that it would be wise for Latter-day Saints to accept the way he has framed the debate on the Book of Mormon. In the Painter interview, he argues that while the Book of Mormon is, an, is, in his estimation, a fraud, in much the same way that the Bible is fraudulent, it is also a work of literary genius and creative theologian. Read this way, the Book of Mormon, like all scripture, is a pious fraud, which is how he understands prophets. By reading the Book of Mormon as fraudulent history fashioned by Joseph Smith, one would, Price insists, enhance Joseph Smith's stature as a prophet. And yet Price also boasts of finding the Book of Mormon rather turgid and unedifying. 
He thinks that the Lord of the Rings is better scripture. He is certain that the Book of Mormon is a hoax, since, in his words, quote, the DNA thing shot the whole premise of the thing to hell, end quote. Price opines without having given any attention to Latter-day Saint scholarship. Armed with a fundamentalist-style atheist certainty, he merely sneers at the inconvenient arguments and evidence. This is understandable, if not laudable. If one is a dogmatic atheist, why take seriously the scholarship of people who actually believe that there is something beyond the mundane world? Price has made a minor career out of pestering Latter-day Saints in an effort to lure them into going down the same path he has taken. His argument that is that if there was no Jesus, as he now insists, then there is no good reason for taking the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith's prophetic truths claims seriously. Given this premise, with much celerity, Price celebrates a circular argument. He merely brushes aside the Book of Mormon. In doing this, as Professor William Hamlin has demonstrated, Price has ignored all the literature published by Latter-day Saints on the Book of Mormon. Since the argument is circular, one can reverse it, which is what Tom Flynn has done. Quote, if today's LDS church can be accounted for without once imagining that there really were golden plates, then how much more confidently can we suppose that Christianity can be understood without any need to presume that there really was a Jesus, much less that he rose from the dead, end quote, page 21. The answer, of course, is not a bit more confidently. In addition, in both formulations, the conclusion is packed into the premise. Flynn provides no evidence for his premise. It is merely asserted. And since Price has dogmatically removed Jesus entirely from history, there is no need for him to examine the Book of Mormon. So it comes as no surprise that Price has been convinced for some time that Joseph Smith's claims about the discovery of the Golden Plates were a hoax. He thus dogmatically rules out even considering whether Joseph Smith was a seer or a prophet. He asks instead if Joseph Smith was a liar, lunatic, or lord. These are clearly not the only possibilities. Prior to caving into a driving agenda, one ought to at least sketch the alternative accounts and then weigh the appropriate evidence. Price does not explain why the saints, whose faith he grants, quote, embodies stolid values and provides meaning and purpose for millions of devotees who would never think of committing fraud themselves, end quote but believe that Joseph Smith was a genuine prophet and not a lunatic or liar, and certainly not the Lord. For Price, given his controlling atheist agenda, the explanation for Joseph Smith must be that he was a liar, who was also somehow came to believe that he was Lord, and hence was also a lunatic. In his essay, Price performs this magic by merely mentioning such bizarre figures as Charles Manson, Rinpoche Chogyam Trungpa, Quote, the Apostle of Tibetan Buddhism in North America, end quote, and Sabatai Tzvi, a notorious Jewish-Muslim false messiah, who all seem to price to embody what he describes as a bizarre trickster deity syndrome. However, Price cannot distinguish between the trickster found in fable and fiction, such as Bugs Bunny or Felix the Cat, and actual human beings. In his essay, he muddles the two notions together, making it possible for him to neglect to demonstrate a historical influence or connection between, say, Charles Manson or Doctor Who and Joseph Smith. Instead, he turns the most exotic and bizarre into, quote, deeply seated archetype in the Jungian sense, end quote. Presumably, one whose psyche is somehow caught up in such an archetype may then experience, quote, psychic inflation, end quote, a kind of swelling in which one so possessed thinks he is beyond moral restraints because he is God. Then, Price asserts, quote, the archetype begins to split at the seams of the merely human self, and one boasts prerogatives, immunities, privileges that benefit an imagined God, but soon corrupt the mere mortal, end quote. This claim grounds his conclusion, quote, This is what I think happened to Joseph Smith. Somewhere along the line, he became inflated with the trickster archetype. The creation of the Book of Mormon was a trick in this sense, end quote. This language presumably explains Price's absurd notion that Joseph, while a liar and a lunatic, also imagined that he was Lord. Please note that Price does not deal with any unruly historical details. He merely argues by bowed analogy and bald assertion. 
He does not confront the actual contents of the Book of Mormon, nor explain how it was written by one who, barely able to write a letter, was in the grips of such an inflated, split-apart, trickster archetype. Nor does he defend his novel explanation against the many competing explanations. 4. Tom Flynn, Obadiah Dogberry, Mormonism's First Critic This essay is the best example of Flynn's failure to cover the issues he indicated would be addressed in the special feature section of this magazine. He merely rehashes some of what has appeared elsewhere concerning Abner Cole. There is one other tiny problem. It seems that when Cole reached Palmyra and became editor of the Palmyra Reflector, his first Obadiah Dogberry foray against Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon appeared on 2nd September 1829. If this is true, and I believe it is, then Cole was not the first critic of Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon. With one exception, an item in the Wayne Sentinel, 26 June 1828, the first published critical remarks on Joseph Smith appeared in the magazine Paul Prize Weekly Bulletin. The first item in this bulletin on the Book of Mormon was published on 8 August 1829, nearly a month before Cole's criticism appeared. 5. Michael Nielsen and Ryan T. Cragen, The Price of Free Inquiry in Mormonism Michael Nielsen and Ryan Cragen point out the obvious, that faith serves deep needs by providing, among other things, a, quote, sense of purpose and meaning, end quote. Faith also provides a, quote, set of rules that guide behavior, end quote, as well as a way of finding, quote, comfort and a way to deal with stress, end quote. They recognize that the beliefs that do this the best are those that make the most demands. Nielsen and Cragen set out a kind of exterior social psychological explanation for why the faith of the saints has endured despite always facing hostile secular and sectarian worlds. They then identify behaviors among the Latter-day Saints that maintain social solidarity in the face of opposition and doubts. All this, the authors opine, works rather well for devout and orthodox believers. But there are, of course, some who are uncomfortable with being faithful Latter-day Saints. These former or nominal Latter-day Saints, dissidents or cultural Mormons, surrender something when they choose to go missing. They must pay an emotional price for abandoning their faith. Nelson and Cragen also muse about the possibility of a kind of, quote, liberal Mormon movement, end quote, something warm and fuzzy like, quote, cafeteria Catholics, quote, among the Latter-day Saints. At this point, they seem to have forgotten that those faiths that prosper are the ones that make the most demands, both moral and otherwise, while those anxiously seeking an accommodation with the dominant secular culture seem to go into decline. Presumably in an effort to make it less emotionally costly for those who do not choose to believe and behave, they want the church to modify the moral demands that faith necessarily involves. This conclusion that they reach, which is perfectly unexceptional, is that being or becoming a, quote, free inquirer inside a religion is challenging, end quote, because it involves costs. However, Nielsen and Cragen don't seem to sense that this is also true within their own atheist community. One who begins to have doubts about atheism or who challenges the fashionable atheist dogmas and behaviors will also pay an emotional price, namely feeling alienated from a community that no longer meets certain emotional or intellectual needs. 6. James Alcock. What is so strange about believing as the Mormons do? Alcock, born 1942, is an amateur magician who, much like Nielsen and Cragen, is a severe critic of parapsychology. He argues, correctly I believe, that, quote, religion is attractive to many people because of the emotional needs that it serves, end quote. His own religion, from my perspective, must do for him something very much like what he attributes to the religions of others. It is true that religion, quote, provides a structure for comprehending the world and giving meaning to our existence. It provides a sense of certainty and stability in times when uncertainty and ambiguity seem to reign. It provides a social network that furnishes friendship and a sense of belonging. It provides succor in times of grief. It provides relief from loneliness, for one's God is always there. And it provides a powerful bulwark against anxiety, end quote. 
From Alcock's apparently atheist perspective, the intellectual-emotional products of faith in God involve many odd things, including such things as, quote, eating and drinking the flesh and blood of their Lord, either symbolically in Protestant denominations or supposedly literally in Roman Catholicism, end quote. These sorts of things appear, quote, unusual or irrational, end quote, to those with a different faith or religion. But he grants that, quote, while it is easy for skeptical monotheists to smirk, we atheists should be careful when throwing stones, for we all live in a glass house where beliefs are concerned, and it is doubtful that any of us are free from significant pockets of irrationality within our own systems of belief, end quote. He grants that what he labels irrational beliefs seem no different from those that do correspond to reality. Alcock then recommends that what he calls, quote, reality testing, logical analysis, and critical scrutiny of information, end quote, as necessary correctives for the, quote, magical thinking, end quote, he attributes to those with faith in God rather than faith in various human endeavors and belief systems. He complains about those for whom, quote, faith is allowed to trump reason, end quote, but without clearly identifying exactly what constitutes either reason or faith. Hence he opines that what he labels a transcendental system in which categories he includes, quote, beliefs of a supernatural, religious, or mystical nature, in quotes, demands, quote, deliberate suppression of logical analysis in favor of acceptance based on faith alone, end quote. He does not, of course, include his own atheist humanist religious belief system in his negative stereotype. And he does not sense that his own belief system seems to function in the same way, the primary difference being the content of what is held on faith alone. He is correct in holding that emotions are necessarily involved in any religion or any belief system, but he does not think that the content of a religion makes any difference. He is wrong. Marxism as a secular religion has demonstrated that content is crucial. 7. C. L. Hansen, Building on Religious Background Ms. Hansen proclaims that she is an atheist but grew up Mormon. She can presumably translate between the two communities. Why? Her once having been LDS makes her, she imagines, sort of bilingual. She is ready and willing, she claims, to correct, quote, those who believe the unusual stereotypes about atheists, end quote, because she knows that they are not really, quote, amoral nihilists or whatever, end quote. She can, she claims, also correct mistakes that atheists make about the faith of the Latter-day Saints. She does these things, quote, sometimes on the Blagernacle, a network of faithful Mormon blogs, end quote. She pictures herself as, quote, a mild-mannered mom, end quote, who posts up a storm on the Internet promoting what she calls, quote, the middle ground where nice, tactful atheism can occur, end quote. Her blogs, Main Street Plaza, and letters from abroad strike me as a bit raunchy and as lacking intellectual content. Hansen needs a sense of solidarity with the Latter-day Saints, even though her own nice atheist community should take care of her emotional needs by providing her with friends, a sense of meaning, and an identity. She believes that, quote, atheists who were raised in other religions can form the same sort of bridges with their own communities, end quote. The fact is, however, that both substance and civility are in rather short supply on lists, boards, and blogs, where the most violent and uninformed are free to impine, opine up a storm. And this goes, unfortunately, for both Latter-day Saints as well as their critics. Some of Hansen's remarks, however, actually almost seem to address Tom Flynn's desire for an answer to the question of how atheists and Latter-day Saints can have something to say to one another, presumably in addition to bashing each other on blogs. Unfortunately, she does not address the two questions, why did Mormonism grow and why does it endure, that constitute the subtitle of Tom Flynn's introduction. This fact highlights a problem with the seven items in Free Inquiry. A Strange Obsession with Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon It is not exactly clear, though that is not to say that it is entirely unclear, why Paul Kurtz and his associates have had a fascination with Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and have attempted to critique the faith of the saints. No Protestant denomination has drawn the same attention from those in charge of this atheist movement. What is clear is that George D. Smith, the owner of Signature Books, has had a hand in this. Beginning in 1984, 
through various conferences and publishing venues, including Free Inquiry, Kurtz and company, at times working with George D. Smith and Signature Books, have sponsored or published a series of attacks on Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. This October-November 2011 issue in Free Inquiry now adds to this bit of sniping, which in the past has included the following items. Paul Kurtz, The Mormon Church, Free Inquiry, introduced Kurtz's first two essays critical of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. Then came George D. Smith's Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, which was subsequently reprinted in On the Barricades, Religion and Free Inquiry in Conflict. These essays were followed by a version of The History of Mormonism and Church Authorities, an interview with Sterling McMurrin. George D. Smith, Polygamy and the Mormon Church, Free Inquiry. George D. Smith, Mormon Plural Marriage, Free Inquiry, 1992. George D. Smith and Paul Kurtz jointly sponsored a three-day Mormon Humanist Dialogue in Salt Lake City on 24 to 26 September 1993. This allowed cultural Mormons to scold Latter-day Saints for not allowing freedom of conscience and also for not embracing radical feminist ideologies. The participants included Brent Lee Metcalf, Levina F. Anderson, L. Jackson Newell, Cecilia Contrafar, Gary James Bajera, Alan Dale Roberts, Fred Buchanan, Martha S. Bradley, F. Ross Peterson, Paul Kurtz, George D. Smith, Bonnie and Vern Bulow, and Robert S. Alley. The Bulos and Alley were speakers provided by Kurtz. These talks were published under the title of Religion, Feminism, and Freedom of Conscience, uh, with an introduction by George D. Smith by Prometheus Books. Tom Flynn then drew favorable attention to this volume in The Humanist Mormon Dialogue in Free Inquiry, Winter 1994. George D. Smith, Strange Bedfellows, Mormon Polygamy and Baptist History in Free Inquiry, Spring of 1996. This essay was eventually reprinted in Freedom of Conscience. It appears that Baptists, who have not capitulated to atheist importuning, also abjure something called Freedom of Conscience. Why George D. Smith was involved in this conference is not clear, except that it seems to have given him an opportunity to opine about polygamy, which seems to be his favorite topic. George D. Smith, Freedom of Inquiry, Introduction in Free Inquiry, Spring of 1997 in which Smith comments on the ideology advanced by P Paul Kurtz. Mark D. Thomas was Joseph Smith for real, how he lied, perhaps even to himself, in Free Inquiry, 1999-2000. Paul Kurtz, on entering the third decade, personal rem reminiscences of a humanist journey, Free Inquiry, Spring 2000. In this retelling of past experiences as an advocate for the atheist causes, Kurtz draws attention to George D. Smith's contributions to Free Inquiry. On 6-8 July 2001, the editors of Free Inquiry sponsored a conference entitled Mormon Origins in Ingersoll Lands. Tom Flynn, founder and director of the Robert Greene Ingersoll Birthplace Museum and now chief editor of Free Inquiry, gave an introductory address entitled A New Religion Under History's Microscope. This was followed by a talk by George D. Smith entitled The Mormons, Pathology, Prognosis, and Why They Are Going to Eat Our Lunch. Clay Chandler then opined on the topic Scrying for the Lord, Magic Mysticism in the Mormon, The Origins of the Book of Mormon, followed by Robert M. Price's Nephites and Neophytes, The Book of Mormon as a New New Testament. Dr. Price's address was subsequently published under the title of Prophecy and Palimpsest, Dialogue 2002. And then in a revised version, this essay was published by Signature Books under the title Joseph Smith, Inspired Author of the Book of Mormon in Vogel and Metcalf's American Apocrypha. Clay Chandler's address was published in Dialogue 2002. George D. Smith, Mormon Polygamy, We Call It Celestial Marriage, Free Inquiry, 2008. This is a much less polished version of his introduction to his book, Nabu Polygamy, but we called it Celestial Marriage, from Signature Books in 2008. For a thorough devastating critique of this book, see Gregory L. Smith, George D. Smith's Nabu Polygamy, Farms Review, 2008. And for a whimsical and yet insightful review, see Robert White, A Review of the Dust Jacket and the First Two Pages, Farms Review, 2008. For my comments on the publication of Nauvoo Polygamy, see Debating Evangelicals, Farms Review, 2008.
Paul Kurtz, Polygamy in the Name of God, Free Inquiry, February, March 2009, in which he comments on George D. Smith's Nauvoo Polygamy. Religion as a Boogeyman, or The essays in Free Inquiry seem to me to expose a flaw in the atheist hostility to religion. What those committed to Free Inquiry call religion is what they see as the absurd, bizarre, magical beliefs and practices of those with whom they disagree. They fail to see that their own community grounding, meaning-granting belief system, or ultimate concern constitutes their struggle to meet their own emotional or intellectual needs. Put bluntly, militant atheism is a secular religion at war with both the moral discipline and the consolation provided by a faith in God. And this atheist self-help religious industry can and must be understood, from a Christian perspective, as an element in the desperate darkness of this world. There is precedent for this assessment. Until rather recently, except in America, this was the way the word religion was understood. As recently as the end of World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was calling for a religionless, but not, of course, an atheist Christianity, and Karl Barth was busy describing religion as the darkness of a fallen world. From my perspective, what is promoted in free inquiry under the label secular humanism is a religion replete with its own teachers and preachers, its own assortment of authoritative scriptures and creeds, and even, it turns out, an odd pilgrimage site. Tom Flynn created for the Council of Secular Humanists a so-called free thought trail in the Finger Lakes area of New York, as well as a museum to venerate the memory of Robert Ingersoll, an exemplary atheist hero. The emotional needs of adherents attached to this version of purely secular religion would seem to need some sustenance. Conferences are held to provide nourishment. However, for several reasons, Kurtz very passionately led secular humanists to strongly object to being seen as religious. One reason for not wanting to be known as a religion is that in the United States, if secular humanism is seen as a religion, then it could face big trouble in the courts because of the First Amendment. One can understand Kurtz's concern over this matter. But otherwise, efforts to shed the religion label seem to me to be a bit callow, given the fact that secular humanists have not abandoned the idea that there is an atheist community, and in this sense, even a kind of church or assemblage of peoples. Modern Militant Public Atheism and the Faith of the Saints Can a book with the title, On the Barricades, Religion and Free Inquiry in Conflict, be seen as mildly epicurean? It seems it cannot. Instead, those engaged in free inquiry, with their ideological swords in hand, are pictured as there on the barricades, ready to fight and die for their religious ideal, liberation from the religion of false faith in God. Leo Strauss once pointed out that Epicureanism is so radically mercenary that it conceives of its theoretical doctrines as a means of liberating the mind from the terrors of religious fear, of the fear of death, and of natural necessity. Again, according to Strauss, quote, The modern manifestation of unbelief is indeed no longer Epicurean. It is no longer cautious or retiring, not to say cowardly, but bold and active. Whereas Epicureanism fights the religious delusion because it is a delusion, regardless of whether religion is terrible or comforting, qua delusion, it makes men oblivious of their real goods, of the enjoyment of the real goods, and thus seduces them into being cheated of the real, this-worldly goods by their spiritual or temporal rulers who live from that delusion. Strauss was not himself a believer, but he was also not a village atheist. He saw that no theoretical account of the whole of reality had rendered faith in God impossible, and he also had a high regard for the social utility of faith in God. He was not entirely unlike the stance taken by Alexis de Tocqueville in his Democracy in America. Tocqueville, roughly a contemporary of Karl Marx, seems in his youth to have lost his Roman Catholic faith, but this did not please him. He seems to have regretted his inability to believe. Be that as it may, Tocqueville set out arguments for the utility of faith in God and in immortality as the necessary ground for the virtues necessary for a civilized society. 
Of course, from the perspective of those with genuine faith in God, the notion that its utility is its only truth is blasphemy. But the more sober, thoughtful doubters have sometimes made common cause with the faithful in struggling to hold back the inevitable moral collapse that militant public atheism offers to liberated childish adults when they begin to realize that, given their new religion, it is either now or never with pleasure, or that, if there is no God, despite what Kurtz and company claim, everything is permitted. What militant atheists see as the religious delusion is ultimately rejected not because it is terrible, but because it is comforting. That is, it actually has an emotional and social utility. This can be seen in several essays in this issue of Free Inquiry. All comforting delusions, it is implied, must be jettisoned. What is presumably now necessary from this perspective is the willingness to face the ultimate terrors of this world without any consolation other than a strong feeling that those others are deluded. Secular criticisms of the faith of the saints are not new. Even prior to the rash of sectarian complaints, Joseph Smith faced criticisms essentially resting on at least an enlightenment fear of superstition, if not entirely or coherently on dogmatic atheism. Paul Pry and Obadiah Dogberry are thus the first in a long line of secular critics of the faith of the saints. To this point, none of these criticisms seem to have risen all that far from the launching pad. This is not, of course, to say that what Paul calls atheos, being without God in the world, is not common when people see no necessity for God, since they have the welfare state to support themselves electronic toys to entertain themselves, or drugs to pleasure themselves. All of these, and many more similar things, are commonly worshipped. Idolatry has not disappeared, even among militant atheists. The reason is that there are many whose hearts are upon their treasures, wherefore their treasure is their God. 2 Nephi 9.30 There is another wonderful passage in our scriptures that describes atheos. In the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants, we learn that there are those who seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way, and after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world, and whose substance is that of an idol. Doctrine and Covenants 1.16 This has been a recording of Atheist Piety by Lewis Midgley, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 1, 2012, pages 111 to 143, read by William Hamblin. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.